Great. Make sure everything's situated. Okay. Great to uh, see everybody this evening. And um, a couple of announcements. The continuing announcement is that we have about 10 days left before the box will go to Ukraine. So if you have anything uh, to go, uh, check the list and uh, then bring whatever is needed for that. Also, whether you've done this before or not, in signing up, we need to know Jack Key's address, email, cell phone, everybody else's too. Whether you've done this before, people change, things change, or we might not have everything. Sometimes we didn't have cell phones or whatever. Everybody has cell phones now, and so just make sure we have all the appropriate contact information. And I'm going to add something. I don't know if Connie should be online now and watching. We need to add a, a text on there, T, because some some people have cell phones that where they can receive text messages and some people don't. And if you can receive a text message, then we can, we can um, send you a text message. Incidentally, just by way of general knowledge and information and news that you don't hear listening to anybody in, on this side of the pond, as they say, uh, 10 days ago, Israel um, had a, you know, outside the U.S., everybody else calls text messages SMS messages. They had a nationwide SMS drill, sort of like we have our uh, little emergency broadcasting drill about, I think, yesterday morning I was trying to watch the news, and then this horrible beeping noise came over the television. But it's that kind of a thing where they can send a text message to everybody in the country in case they're under attack or they need to tell everybody to watch out for missile attacks or or gas attacks or invasion from Iran or whatever. Uh, that's part of the, one interesting aspect of news is that, they're, that they had a successful S, SMS drill. And the other part of it is that they've been reducing the leave time for uh, IDF troops. Typically, if you're serving in the IDF, somewhere around noon on Thursday, you start heading to the local bus station so that you can catch the bus home. And then you're off on, on Friday and Saturday. That's their weekend because Saturday is Shabbat. And then Sunday morning they start moving back. Well, they've been canceling the regular weekend leaves, and they're also slowly but surely activating um, activating uh, IDF reserve units in the event that something uh, nasty happens. And then on the southern border, there have been a, a constant uh, attempts to test the security uh, in the south, and the Sinai, which is uh, now just a no-man zone, no-man's land since uh, Egypt uh, was taken over by the Muslim Brotherhood, and a lot of the weaponry that uh, Libya had is being brought in by all of these wannabe al-Qaeda groups that are now operating freely with no restraint in the Sinai. So this put Israel went from living in a very bad neighborhood to living in, in the eye of an extremely bad Islamic hurricane. And so we need to be very much in prayer for them and for us because the, their enemies are our enemies. And in many cases, even though when I say this to folks in the U.S., it's interesting that Iran will, if Israel attacks Iran, Iran will attack us. And people say, well, that would be stupid. 
Intelligence has nothing to do with any policy that Iran has adopted, so don't, don't think it does. But they view us as the big Satan, which in their thinking what that means is we're the real power behind Israel. And if Israel attacks them, no matter what the press says, in the view of, of the Iranians, we're behind it. So if we have aircraft carriers and ships operating in the Persian Gulf, which we do, they, uh, th- what I've heard from a number of Israeli analysts in the last three months is that we will, if, if Israel attacks, the retaliation will include a retaliation against the U.S. Now, I don't know if that's what's going to happen. I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying that's what you hear from sources that are outside of the U.S., sources inside the U.S., which t- tend to be terribly myopic and, and living in fantasy land too much of the time, uh, don't think that that will happen. So I don't know what that means, but I just thought you'd be interested in hearing another viewpoint. So we need to be in prayer for all these things, for the election, for the hurricane that's fi- fixing to hit the Republican National Convention next week, Interestingly named Isaac. <laughs> Laughter. Hmm. <laughs> I just have a strange mind to think of these things, but maybe God is a little sense of humor there. So it, we just need to be in prayer for a lot of different things as well as uh, folks here in the church. So... Fortunately, we have a God who is in charge of everything so we can sit back as joyful, relaxed spectators. Scripture says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we can come before you in prayer. We can come before you in trusting you, claiming promises, recognizing that you are the God who controls history, and you have a plan, a purpose, and a destiny for human history, and that destiny is ultimately related to your plan, purposes for your people, Israel. And as we look at the world scene today, we look at all of the events that have been taking place the last 18 to 20 months in the uh, Middle East with the governmental shifts the civil war now in Syria, uh, its expansion into Lebanon, the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt, and their influence in other areas, the uh, continued growth of the nuclear uh, prospects of Iran. We pray that you would continue to protect Israel. We pray that this country would continue to be faithful in its support of Israel, that despite the plans and the desires 
and the lack of resolve that this current administration uh, demonstrates in relationship to Israel, that there would be those who would be steadfast and that we would uh, present a solid backing for Israel and that we pray that we would have an administration change that would uh, implement that that, uh, course shift in terms of our support for Israel, recognizing that you have that uh, Israel completely under protection and that they are protected by more than just technology, more than military, more than the United States, because you are their ally. Father, we pray for us in this very chaotic world that as we look at all of the different, uh, all of the different winds of change that are taking place, that we might not be uh, surprised, that we might not be worried or overcome by worry or fear, that we might be wise in our deliberations and decisions in light of uh, things that could happen, but that we might recognize and put our trust in you and be completely relaxed. Father, as we study your word today, we realize that ultimately what matters above everything is our own personal spiritual growth, our ability to trust in you, our ability to relax in you, our ability to pursue excellence in our spiritual life. And we pray that we might be challenged again in those areas as we go through our our continued study here in Romans chapter 6. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's go back to Romans 6. I want to pick up on some things today. And if you haven't had enough coffee, caffeine, uppers, whatever it is that gets you through Bible class some nights, well, you may be in trouble tonight because uh, I've got some more really good, fun, technical Greek grammar lessons for everybody. And this is particularly helpful. Uh, this was one of those days for me this afternoon when I finally had a couple of 10-watt light bulbs go off after about 30 years of being concerned about a, a particular passage and not really... I understood what it meant, but I couldn't get the grammar to fit it. Now, that's a problem because you've got to make the grammar fit. And the problem is that there were some problems in Greek in our understanding of Greek grammar. And too often, I think, people in the pew get mystified when pastors talk about Greek. I know there's one school of thought that say that oh, the pastors who refer to Greek and Hebrew are just showing off. That's not true, or it shouldn't be true. It's a point of validation of translation and help. You may, I don't expect you to follow all the, all the uh, permutations and technicalities of grammar, but just as some 30 years ago when I sat in a lecture on creationism by A.E. Wilder Smith, who had three doctorates and probably couldn't communicate to anybody clearly who had less than two doctorates, I at least could grasp his conclusions and see that he had cogent evidence for his conclusions, even though I couldn't repeat it, my faith was strengthened. And so I hope that at the very least that should be true for all of us. Uh, It is important to understand these things because translations, especially in difficult passages, are often uh, victims of the translator's theological proclivities or limitations. And we need to be always be careful of that. That doesn't mean that you can't uh, understand the text in, uh, in the English translation without going to the Greek or Hebrew, but that sometimes there are passages that need a little more help in getting to what they are, what they are saying 
because the a, a strict translation can't fully grasp all of the nuances that are embedded in the original language. Uh, certainly never want to communicate that you need to you shouldn't read your English Bible because you might get confused. Let me tell you if you're reading Greek or Hebrew, you're going to get confused just over other things. No language is perfect. And Greek does not solve every problem, as we will see today. I think that's a good lesson, is that Greek just can muddy the water as much as clear the water. And I, and I say that because I think sometimes people think, oh, if I just knew the languages, it would be so clear. One thing I discovered in first-year Greek, and now, now that I know something about the language, it's muddier. Because it doesn't, it's a language. It has limitations. So of, of any any language. So we're it's really a, th- what we're looking at today, trying to pull together some of the things that I pointed out before related to old man and new man and the sort of a, a sense that some people have that when they read this language, the old man, they, they want to bring in that term old sin nature. And that's not what the old man is because the old man's dead, but the sin nature's not. So... I've sort of titled this lesson facetiously, Are You Trying to Resuscitate Your Old Man? In other words, are you trying to live like you did before you were saved because of grace? Well, that's not what Paul is uh, stating here. In fact, he's denying it in those first four verses, which we've gone over before, that the foundation, again, is understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He does that here. As you remember, if you were with me through our study of Colossians 2.7 down to where we are in 3.16, it's the foundation. All of the language up through about 3.9, 3.10 in Colossians was all language that came comes right out of the language of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. The conclusion is if we don't grasp that in terms of our foundational mental framework for interpreting the details in our lives. If that's not the glasses that we're wearing as we look at our life, get rid of the rose-colored glasses, put on the baptism of the Holy Spirit glasses. If you don't have that, we're not going to respond biblically in terms of our spiritual life and spiritual growth. As uh, you've heard me say in the past, the Apostle Paul always takes us back to these kinds of what people today would say is extremely theological, abstract principle to answer any question. If you ask the Apostle Paul, how do you clean your teeth? He would start with the Trinity and the essence of God. And he would spend 90% of the answer talking about the Trinity, the essence of God, and then the fact that you're in the image of God before he ever got to the point of going to the store and buying a toothbrush. Because everything must be placed within the context of who we are as image bearers in Christ and in uh, and in, in uh, image bearers of God and what that means and who God is and once you grasp that then you can pick up all the application gets fairly simple so we looked at a summary of sin in this chapter last week i'm just going to go through this very quickly to by way of review First of all, I pointed out that the noun homertia is the word that's used here. When it's used in the singular, it refers to the sin nature. And um, the noun is used 25 times in Romans 6 through 8. The verb homertano is only used one time in Romans 6.15 where it refers to an act of sin. But everywhere else that you see the word sin, it's homertia and it refers to the sin nature. 
The second point I made was that as Paul depicts the spiritual struggle of the believer with the sin nature, an internal disposition to sin, he dramatizes it by personifying the sin nature. He wants to, this is a real battle. It is the angelic conflict that's been personalized in your body. And that's what it's all about. And so sometimes it rages, it seems, uncontrollably. Third point, the sin nature is spoken of as sin and also as the body of sin because the body of sin is a term that represents the totality of who we are and our sin nature is always expressed through our body. We have mental attitude sins, but they are expressed through either sins of the tongue or overt sins, but it always works its way out in terms of the body. We'll see another term introduced, flesh, and I think the terms body of sin and flesh also refer to the fact that our basic bodies, I pointed out from a reference to 1 Corinthians 15 last week, is corrupt. All of our cell structure, our DNA, has been corrupted by the sin nature, So, and that fits within a corrupt universe. So that's all part of this. That's the sin dealing with the sin nature. Fourth point I stated was that for the unbeliever, that is the non-Christian, they're born with only one nature. Every one of us, we're born with one nature, one capacity, one disposition, and that is the disposition to uh, self-absorption, self-aggrandizement, autonomy, and opposition to God. It's not until we're saved and we become a new creature in Christ that we're given a new disposition called the new man, a new identity, a new position in Christ where we have options. Prior to regeneration, there's no options. You're, everything proceeds from that corrupt nation, uh, nature. Fifth point I made is that this person that we were before we were saved it's called the old man, and we need to understand it. There's been this sort of a confusion. In fact, there was uh, one well-known evangelist from back in the early part of the 20th century named Charles Erdman, for whom Erdman Publishing House was named, who said, our old dispositions and habits and evil desires have been put to death. That's how he interpreted this. Well, that would mean that, that we, we don't have a sin nature anymore. So that here's a generally solid person who misunderstands Romans 6. There's a lot of people who have done that. So there are two basic ways to understand the term old man, as I pointed out last week. One is that this is the sin nature, but that just doesn't work because the sin nature is still alive and well in our bodies. But the old man is dead. There's a a real separation there that has occurred, and that's the foundation for Paul's whole argument. And I gave you several reasons for that, and then I came down to the sixth reason and said that if the sin nature is dead, then we have a problem with Romans 6, 14 to 25, which depicts the believer's struggle with sin. We have a real struggle with sin. The sin nature is not dead, but the old man is dead. Now, we're setting, I've set the stage here. Romans 6 teaches this principle very clearly. The old man is dead, crucified with Christ in the baptism by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, there's another passage that we've studied. I went to this last time. I'm going back to it again because Romans 6 is clear. Colossians 3 is clear. So let's just go back and just, once again, a little bit of review. This long discourse Paul has in Colossians 2 started with using the, because he's dealing with a Jewish-influenced heresy in, in Colossae, remember, that was putting an emphasis on circumcision as having spiritual significance. And what Paul is arguing is it, it, spiritual circumcision is a <clears throat> depiction of the removal, positional removal of the power of the sin nature, which is what occurs in the baptism by the Holy Spirit. We spent a lot of time on that in Colossians 2, 11, 12, 13, 14, etc., what came out of that was some conclusions that Paul started. For example, in Colossians 2.20, Therefore, if you died, and you did, it's a first-class condition, if you died with Christ, that's that picture that takes place that Paul talks about in Romans 6 in relation to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse um, 2, How shall we who died to sin live in it anymore? See, we die to sin. In verse uh, three, those of you who, as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized or identified into his death. That's Colossians 2.20. The verse, uh, Romans 6.6, 6, because you know this, that our old man, everything we were before we were saved, was crucified with him. So again, we died with him. This is stated again in verse 7, for he who has died uh, has been literally justified from sin. It's not freed from sin there. That It's dikaio. It's been justified or declared justified uh, from sin, which makes a lot more sense in the passage. So that's what Colossians 2, 23, 1, 3, 3 are all talking about. You were raised with Christ. That's the same principle. In baptism by the Holy Spirit, we're identified with Christ. We're identified with his death, with his burial, with his resurrection. We died with him. We were raised with him. Verse 3 then said, for you died. See, it's not just you, you died if you act like it. You died. It's a, it's a statement of reality. You died at that instant. The old man died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the present reality. Therefore, he says... Put to death your members which are on the earth. He shifts from positional to experiential. The reality is you're dead to the sin nature. You're dead to the old man, not to the sin nature, excuse me. You're dead to everything you were before you were saved, but you're still living that way. You put yourself, we all do that. We put ourselves back under the, the, the tyranny of our sin nature. And that's why he says now you have to experientially separate yourself from that, uh, power of the sin nature. You have to put that to put to death your members which are on the earth. And then in verse 8 he says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things. He uses this term uh, in the Greek, apotithemi, which has this picture of removing clothes. It's experiential. But notice what you're putting, what you're removing here is certain actions, certain sins, not the old man, but the certain sins that characterize sin nature control. And then in verses 10 to 11, he says, because you have, past tense, statement of reality, 
uh, it, it's from a, 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 an heiress participle here because you have put on the new man. The participle states that you you put on the, it's it's a done deal. You're not it's not a process. It's a done deal. You put on a new identity, a new person. Okay, now I'm going to expand on that just a little bit. Colossians three nine says, "Do not lie to one another." It's a present tense command. It's where we get into a little Greek grammar, and it's so important. Because a participle can be a past tense, future tense, or present tense. If it's present tense, then the action of the participle is at the same time as the action of the verb, whatever that action is. If it's a past tense participle, then the action of that participle comes before the action of the main verb if the main verb is a present tense. So the present tense command here means that right now you're not to lie to one another. Since or because you have already, it's a past tense, so the action of that participle, the putting off, occurs prior to lying to one another. And he's stating a previous reality. You put off the new man. Uh, You put off, excuse me, you put off the old man with his deeds. That happens because the old man's dead. And you have put on the new man. That's also past tense. So he's referring to a positional reality. This is so important. Don't glaze over here. You're not the person you were. That's the old man. You've got a new identity because and a new capability, new disposition. As a result of that, verse 12 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Now, these are specific virtues. It's not talking about the new man here. The new man was put on. Because you now have a new identity, now you need to take control of actions in, in your terms of your own life in producing those virtues. Oh, that's produced by your walk by the Spirit. Now, all of that is said. What have I done? I went to Romans 6, which is a clear passage that you've put that the old man died when you trusted in Christ and you became a new person in Christ. It's clearly stated in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Okay, I went to Colossians. Colossians 3, especially these verses 9 and 10, tell us that the old man in the past was put off, the new man has been put on. This has happened before. It happened at salvation with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there's a parallel passage, and you've seen, remember, I've done this many times on Sunday morning. I've gone from a passage in Colossians to a parallel passage in Ephesians. Paul wrote these two epistles at approximately the same time. There's a lot of similarity between them, but there are differences because he's writing to different circumstances and situations in those two in the lives of those two churches when we go to the parallel passage in in ephesians 4 it gets a little little funky and the reason it does is because the grammars in the greek is different it's for lack of a better term it's fuzzy it's fuzzy and i first got alerted to this in in a in my first semester in seminary in the spiritual life course, and I don't even remember if the profs tried to solve the problem or not, but every time I've hit it, I've tried to nail down 
these verbs because in Ephesians 4, 20 to 24, the key verbs related to putting off the old man in 4.22 and being renewed in 4.23 are infinitives. And then you have another and put on in 4.24 is another infinitive. Now, infinitives have a, to say the least, a little bit of a complex grammatical function. Now, some people think, because I've done a lot of stuff in grammar, that, that I came out of the womb talking about diagramming sentences, which I absolutely hate to do. And in the sixth grade, for those of you who think this is really strange, in the sixth grade, my parents had numerous parent-teacher conferences because, well, Robbie just couldn't figure out the difference between a noun and a verb, not to mention ones, twos, and threes. Okay, so there's hope for everybody, just repetition, and we can figure it out. But at least you can get some of the conclusions here. Because this is this is really important, and I finally got this figured out today, and I figured out too what the problem is, which is also important to understand. So let's look at this passage. Let me just read through this. I'm going to give you, as I read through it, what this passage, what I believe this passage is saying. Now, what's interesting is there's a lot of fuzziness on explanation of the grammar. I looked at a number of different commentaries, and it's interesting how many people kind of gloss past the grammar. Some of them get the meaning right because if you're coming at this and you understand what Romans 6 says and what Colossians 3 says, you can't contradict it in Ephesians 4. So they go, okay, it's got to be consistent, but I can't figure out the grammar on the knowledge that we have in, in terms of grammars. So, And then I picked up Lewisbury Chafer's little commentary on the Ephesian letter, which he wrote around 1916 or 1917, and he doesn't deal with the grammar at all, but he gets the meaning right. But I've looked at some other people, and they didn't get the meaning right. Bible knowledge commentary just glosses over the whole thing as if it's really not there and I don't want to deal with it, which happens with a lot of commentaries. Not with that one so much, but on this one it did. So let me give you the context. What he's doing is he's starting to get into this section in Ephesians 4 where he's talking about Go ahead, you might want to turn your Bible there because you may want to annotate uh, or underline or write some notes or something in here. But in Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul goes through the underlying doctrines related to the spiritual life. And then in chapter 4, he starts talking about the practical implications of what he has said in the first three chapters. And if you think these, in Vuri chapter 4, you're going to say, wait a minute, I'm not sure this is practical other than he tells me not to do some things and to do some things, but the rest of it seems a little murky. He starts in verse 1 by saying, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, because he's in prison in Rome, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. So he's obviously talking about the Christian life. That's the imagery of the walk, is how do you live moment by moment in the Christian life. So he's talking about that, and in the next section, in verses 7 down to 14, is where he says talks about the foundation for this, and the foundation is that, first of all, you have to have a pastor teacher who's going to equip you to do the work of the ministry, and a pastor teacher is going to teach you the Word, and until that happens, you're just as lost and as hopeless as you can be in trying to figure it all out. And sometimes you got some blind shepherds. Then he starts talking about 
the, 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 what's happened in terms of the Gentiles. In verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility or the emptiness of their mind, having their, because their understanding is darkened, because they're alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. So what that tells you is there's a twofold problem, ignorance, but the ignorance is there because their heart is blind. Romans 1 says it's blind because they have chosen to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes through this, and in verse 20 he says, but you, look at the screen, but you have not so learned Christ. In other words, you didn't learn Christ this way. That is, in terms of the perverse behavior of the Gentiles. And then in verse 21, he says, if indeed you have heard him, and again, it's a first-class condition indicating you have heard him, and you have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, what happens here is he makes this statement, you have been taught by him, and you've been taught this truth. What truth is have you been taught? If you look in most of your Bibles, you will notice that verse 21 ends with a colon. That's, that's important. That's, that's good grammatical identification there because what it's telling you is that verses 22, 23, and 24 are identifying that truth, that doctrine. Now, that you have learned about Christ. This truth is related to your life in Christ. So he's not talking about how to get into Christ. You're in Christ, and this is the truth that you've learned. Verse 22, that you, and it should be understood to say that you have already put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows and I think it should be translated is, it's a continuing action there, which is being going, ongoing, it's describing the nature of the old man. The old man and the unbeliever is constantly being corrupted. It's an ongoing process until they die. That, that, that the sin nature corrupts and corrupts and corrupts. Uh, according to the deceitful lust, that's the motivation, the core motivator in the sin nature. And be renewed. Now, he changes from a a past tense or an aorist infinitive to a present infinitive. Be renewed. And, And what he's really saying that you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, not in the spirit of your feelings, not in the spirit of your emotions, not in the spirit of your your gut, your mystical liver quiver, but in your mind. The Christian life starts with knowledge again and again and again. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you have put on. Notice I put that in there to indicate it's not that you... See, if it's tra- the way it's translated is that you put on. Now, doesn't that sound like a command that you are to put on? Does it sound like a command? It sounds like it says that you put off. I, I inserted have already because that makes it a description but it sounds, if you just read it in most English translations, that you put off. That sounds like it's a command. 
That's the fuzziness here. It's an infinitive. It's not an imperative. But the funny thing is you have this a use of the infinitive that can be imperatival. And so there are many people who take this as an imperatival infinitive, which means that it contradicts Romans 6 and Colossians 3. It really gets very fuzzy here. So let me just try to simplify this a little bit for you. There are four key verbs here, and you just have to zero in on these key verbs, and I've color-coded them for you as if I actually had majored in Christian education. That's always a joke. We used to joke about the fact that the Christian, you could always tell a Christian ed major because he walked around with, with colored pens in his hand so he could color code everything. The Christian ed department was introduced by Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary. Howard Hendricks introduced almost everything I believe is negative to Dallas, Dallas Seminary. Howie's a nice guy. He, I loved his Bible study methods class. But he introduced psychology and counseling. He introduced spiritual formation groups. He introduced uh, a number of other things, that, including a, a talking John Walbert into having a Christian ed department, which Lewis Berry Chafer had sworn he'd never have at Dallas Seminary. I'll tell you a funny little story. Every now and then when I was working at Baraka, I'd sit around the table and have a little social time with Bob Thiem. And every now and then we would moan and groan about how Dallas Seminary was going downhill on a greased rail. And then I would look at him with a little twinkle in my eye and I would say, you know, you really can't complain about it because it's all your fault, Colonel. And then he would look at me with that look. And I'd say, well, you've always bragged about how when Howard Hendricks was in his first year at Dallas Seminary, he couldn't, he couldn't get, he wasn't going to pass any of his courses. He wasn't very, very good in Greek or Hebrew, and you tutored him. And because you tutored him, he passed everything. Well, if he had, hadn't passed everything, he never would have become a professor and introduced all these errors into Dallas Seminary. So it's all your fault. Quit complaining. <laughs> then he would lean back in his chair and laugh and laugh. So you got to pay attention to these words, though. Color coding helps to bring out the point. The main verb here, remember... In Greek grammar, don't glaze over, your infinitives and participles are always tied to explaining something about your main verb. Your main verb is that red word up there, taught. And what follows verse 21 is an explanation of the truth that that they have been taught in the past. So this is referencing something that they've already been taught in the past. Now, there are three of these infinitives that are mentioned there. Uh, put off and put on are both, in, I've colored them blue because they're both aorist tense infinitives, which is a past action. Although in outside of the indicative mood, time is really not that important in terms of understanding tense. It's more uh, the kind of action that's there, sort of a summary action. Something and then be renewed is ongoing action. It's in green. It's a present infinitive. So now I've put these things in here for you. The two blue words put off and put on reflect apotithemi, which is the same word we saw in Colossians three nine. Putting you have put off. It's a an aorist middle infinitive. The aorist means it's past action. 
its middle voice, which means that the the individual receives the benefits of the action, and it's an infinitive, which means it's not a, a finite verb, and that's where you get into the uh, grammar problem. And in duo, which is the opposite, it means to put on, is the same grammatical construction. It's an aorist middle infinitive. But in contrast to those that are in the past, there's a present passive infinitive, be renewed. So what's the thrust of this? Verse 21 is really introducing a prior statement, a prior teaching, something that Paul taught them before. But he's couching this in indirect discourse. I'm not going to ask you for a definition. Who, I, who could I call on to tell me what's indirect discourse? You have two things. You have direct discourse and indirect discourse. This takes you back to probably sixth or seventh grade grammar, or hope, hopefully. Okay, here's some examples for you. Example one. If I say, I told him to go to the store. That's indirect discourse. I'm not giving you a direct quote. If I say, I told him, comma, quote, go to the store, unquote, that's direct discourse. I'm giving a direct quotation. If it's indirect discourse, you're simply saying, I told him something. I told him to go to the store. You're not giving the direct quote. But if you move from the indirect to the direct, there's something significant that goes on there, at least in the Greek, is that if you go from a direct command, I told him, go to the store, and then you say it as an indirect, I told him to go to the store, it, the, the, the tense of the original command is preserved. Now, that I'll come back to haunt you with that in a minute. Another example, he claimed to have gone to the store, is indirect discourse. And then he claimed, or he made the claim, I went to the store. See how that's in direct, in quotes? That's a direct discourse. Well, in Greek, you do the same thing. You have direct and indirect discourse. And in, indirect discourse is not giving you a direct quote of what was said in the past. It's saying, I taught you this. I taught you this, colon, that Christ died for your sins or that you are to forgive one another or I taught you that you, that the old man is dead. Now, that takes us to our second command, second example. In the first statement, we say, I taught you that you put off the old man. See, the that in there tells you it's indirect discourse. If it was direct discourse, it would be like uh, down below, the first example, I taught you, you put off the old man. It's referring to something that was said in the past that's a statement of reality. I taught you. You put off the old man. That's putting it in a direct quote. But then if I transferred that direct statement to an indirect, I would say, I taught you that you put off the old man. But there's, there's something ambiguous in this because in the Greek, it could also be translated, I taught you put off the old man, which is an imperative. So the grammatical structure could go one of two ways. You could legitimately translate it as a statement of reality. I taught you that you had put off the old man. Or I taught you to put off the old man. See, both of them are legitimate translations. 
Language has those kinds of ambiguities, and it comes across even in English. The way you say something may be a little fuzzy, and this is fuzzy. Now, what happened historically in the early 19th century, or early 20th century, rather, an error, several errors crept into our understanding of Greek grammar around the turn of the last century, but an error crept into Greek grammar of early 20th century that there was no instance of an aorist infinitive in the New Testament that represented an original statement of an aorist indicative. Now, let me explain that by going back to our previous example. See, the original statement is, is this one here. What I taught you, that's past tense. But when I taught you this in the past, I said, you put off the old man. Now I'm referring back to that. That's the original statement. This would be an indicative mood when it was originally stated. But when I am when I convert this into a an indirect discourse and use an infinitive, it would be I taught you that you put off the old man. And so it get now it gets fuzzy, just like your brain. You're hearing me go, ah, I don't get that. It's okay. You'll get maybe you'll get it in a minute. So this error crept in, and it was produced by one of the top, considered by many to be a top Greek grammarian. It's always good to know who's who. I tell people, I, I try to tell young pastors one of the important reasons you need to pack your bags and move across the country and go to seminary. There may be some errors there. There's errors everywhere. One of the reasons you go is because you're going to learn things you can't learn sitting under another pastor. And one of the most beneficial, unintended consequences is you learn who people are. And you learn the history of the church. And you learn to identify who, who's who in church history. And Ernest DeWitt Burton, and I have many of his works on grammar, but I found out today that, that he taught Greek grammar at the University of Chicago when it was first founded, and his last two years on this earth, he was the president of the University of Chicago. But he also wrote a book with a, one of the foremost liberal antagonists of fundamentalists in the early 19th century, and that was Shaler Matthews. So he's a mixed bag in terms of his theology. Now, that, his theology doesn't impact this at all. It's just you need to know who the players are sometimes. So this is Ernest DeWitt Burton, and... He made this statement that as he looked at all of the uses of aorist infinitives, there was none that, in, that, that could be translated as originally having been an aorist indicative. Now, I'm saying he's wrong. And today, thanks to being able to do a lot of work with computers and stuff, it's pretty much that case. So historically, all such aorist infinitives were translated as aorist imperatives, including Ephesians 4.22. That's why when you read it in your New King James or New American Standard or any of your others, it reads like it's an imperative. I taught you that you put off. It comes across sounding like it's an imperative because of this principle. But the problem is not only a grammatical problem, it contradicts the usage in Romans 6 and Colossians 3. And this is what I had trouble with for the last 30 years is that you look this up in your Greek grammars and they don't give you an alternative other than understanding this 
aorist infinitive here to be an imperative, but it doesn't fit that way. And a lot of commentators have recognized that. They just ignore the grammar, and they've handled the passage as, like Chafer did as a statement of a, of a reality, not an imperative. The solution to this is that the, the mood, that is, trying to decide if this is an imperative or indicative, actually derives from the mood of the controlling verb. The problem is in about 95% of the usage uses where you have an aorist inf- infinitive in an indirect discourse statement in the New Testament, the controlling verb, and here the controlling verb is taught. In the others, it's I urge you to, colon. The, the main controlling verb has an imperatival sense, which is transferred to the infinitive. But see, when it's just stated here, I taught you, there's no imperatival sense in that main verb in, in, verse, um, in verse 21. It's, an, it's just a statement of reality. And there's about th- only about two or three of these in the New Testament. So it would be easy to make the error that Ernest DeWitt Burton made, and there have been a number of technical monographs written in the last 15 years that have uh, cor- sought to correct this problem. And it's important because it has serious theological implications because if we're still trying to put off the old man, then, and the, then the old man isn't dead. But on this basis, we can understand that what Paul is saying here is, I taught you something. I taught you that you have already put off the old man. And that's what he says in Colossians 3. That's what he says in Romans 6. Why? Because the old man's dead. That's what happened with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So my last point on this, in uh, in all the other similar, almost all the other similar uses, the verb, uh, when the main verb is an exhortation or imperative, the the infinitive would be, and I that should read thus: the infinitive would be an in, in, understood as an imperative if the main verb is has an imperatival sense. So, what this means is this: what I said at the beginning. I've argued for it. You may not have caught all the technicalities, but what I'm trying to show is that histor- historically an error crept in in the early 20th century, that all aorist infinitives should be translated as as an imperative. But that may be true in 90 to 95% of the uses in the New Testament, but that's because the main verb is imperatival. But there's about three or four cases where the main verb is not an imperative. And in those, it's talking about a past action that was simply described as a reality. So we translate it this way. If indeed, and you have, been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now it's going to tell us that truth. That you have already put off the old man. That's what Paul had taught them previously. And then he describes the old man here. Same way he did in Colossians. The old man grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. That's the characteristic of the the old man, the unbeliever. That's the person before regeneration. And then in verse 23, he says, and he, remember, he shifts now to a present infinitive and are being and are renewed. Again, it has that sense of a description, are renewed. You put on the new man 
uh, in the in the spirit of your mind, or, or you are being renewed. Present infinitive there. That's indicating present tense action. You are being renewed right now in the spirit of your mind. That's phase two, spiritual life. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our mind because we've already put off the old man and that you have already put on the new man, which was created. See, that's a past tense there. The old man, I mean, the new man was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. We're being renewed according to the image of Christ because we put on this new identity. Okay. Everybody get that? Anybody confused? You can raise your hand. I'm not going to go over it again. <laughs> Maybe I will. Just want to make sure I didn't confuse everybody. But I think this is really clear. I've wondered. About, I've been re- wrestling with this for, for 30 years, and so I think I've finally got this figured out. Now I can go teach Ephesians. I'm just joking. Okay. So Paul is declaring, like he did in Colossians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. The old man is dead. And we have to grasp that if we're going to understand our new identity in Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is, in my physical life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The old man's dead. Now the issue is your volition. I covered the last next couple of points dealing with the nature of death. This is so important in this section. Death means separation. Spiritual death is separation from God. Positional death means we're separated from our old man. That's part of what's in positional death. We're separated from our old man and we're separated from the tyranny of the sin nature. So we're completely separated from the person we were prior to salvation. The old man is gone. We put on the new man. Now we have to, now the new man has to learn how to live like a new man. We have to learn that new identity. This is clearly stated in passage like 2 Corinthians 5.17. I said 5.21 earlier. It's 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's, it's final. It's not a process. Galatians 6.15, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Uh, seventh point I gave last week was a purpose for this was death, which meant to do away, which purpose is to do away uh, potentially with the body of sin, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, Romans 6.6. 6 that we might walk in newness of life. That's the whole point of this. We can walk in a new quality of life. It's all about a new quality of life. And we are to be freed from sin, that is, we're justif- because we have been justified from sin. Okay. Uh, these are the in- implications. We'll come back to that. Now I want to get into the next section in the few minutes we have left. The next six verses consists of two sets of three. I want to get into this tonight so you can kind of get a little familiarization here, and then we'll unpack some other things next week. We have this comparison and contrast. Notice how I've color-coded the words here. In the first, in the left column, verses 5, 6, and 7 had the same grammatical structure as verses 8, 9, and 10. The, it begins, both begin with an if clause stating the reality of something. 
The second verse, the middle verses in both sections start with a verb for knowing. It's gnosko in one, oida in the other one. It's, it's a causal participle emphasizing that because we know something. So again, it's emphasizing we have to know certain things if we're going to go anywhere in the Christian life. And then the last verse explains an implication. So you see that the blue words are the parallel which identify the same thought structure. But they also pick up some main ideas like death and resurrection. In 6.5 we talk about we have been, if, or we could even translate it since, we have been united together in the likeness of his death. We were united with Christ by baptism by the, by the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 in parallel says, if we died with Christ. One other thing I want to point out. Notice it's, it's a logical structure. He starts with a, uh, an, an assumption in verse 5 then a principle we should know in verse 6, and then a concluding implication in verse 7. And the concluding implication of verse 7, for he who has died has been justified from sin, becomes the assumption of verse 8. If we died with Christ. See, it's verse 7 was for he who has died. Verse 8 begins now, if we died with Christ. So it's very logical. He's building in the first set of verses on the left to that conclusion in verse 7, for we did die with, since we died with Christ. That becomes the assumption of verse 8, since we died with Christ, and then he's going to build on that to a final conclusion. The comparison here is between uh, death, the unity in death leads to life. So the, the left column in verse 5 since we've been united with the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, I'm not going to ask you, but I would say that at first blush, nearly every one of us would say this is talking about phase three. That would be wrong. This is not talking about the future resurrection, but the experience of that new resurrection life and power now. Because what this passage is all talking about is our new life in Christ now. So the future tense there at the end of verse 5, certainly we shall all be in the likeness of his resurrection. The resurrection is the picture and the portrait of our new life in Christ because the death is analogous to our break with the old man. The resurrection is analogous to our new life in Christ. So we have those same ideas, death and life. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So that, that theme all through Romans 6 is that the life here is not future life after we die, but the quality of life that we have here and now, the abundant life that Jesus talked about in, in John 10.10. 10. In verse 6, it talks about the principle of something we know, knowing this, or because we know this, that our old man was crucified with him. That is, everything that we were, we've already covered that, is dead in its identification with Christ for the purpose that subsequently the body of sin might be done away with, might be abolished. The same word is used to talk about the abolishment 
of prophecy in tongues as spiritual gifts. Same word, katrogeo. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. It has the idea of nullifying the power of the sin nature so we won't be experientially slaves to sin anymore. And that's parallel to in the, the, the verse 9, which talks about the fact that after Christ was raised from the dead, death no longer had any authority over him. So the point is, your sin nature has no more authority over you. And then in the last verses in Romans 6, 7, is the explanation. For, or because he who has died has been declared, it ties it to justification. That positional death is related to being justified or declared righteous from sin. Romans 6.10 says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. It's at point in time action that changes everything after it. So that subsequent to it, the life that he lived, he lives to God. Death is death. The death means that the sin nature no longer has the right to rule. So why do you keep trying to resuscitate the old man and give the sin nature power? Because we want real life. And what this is saying is that that the sin nature is a tyrant. And whenever we sin, we're just saying, okay, it's okay for the sin nature to dominate my life. And you're just going to live like a dead person with the corrupting influence and control of this of the sin nature. And this is what happens with a lot of believers who are living in carnal or temporal death. They put themselves under the authority of the sin nature, and as a result, they're still living like an unbeliever. It messes up their marriages. They don't train up their children correctly. It messes up their the integrity that they have at, at work. It impacts their their politics. It impacts everything in their life. They're thinking like an unbeliever, so they're living like an unbeliever. But they go to church every Sunday and take notes, and they wonder, Where's, how come my life isn't any different from my next-door neighbor's? It's because you're, you're still living under the control of the sin nature. You're just confessing it all the time, but you're going right back under the control of the sin nature two seconds later. The point is, in, forget, in using 1 John 1, 9, is that you can recover from sin, not so you can continue to sin. I know that's a tough concept for some people. It's abiding in Christ. The emphasis is staying in fellowship, not getting back into fellowship. The getting back into fellowship is just a get-out-of-jail-free card. But you don't want to get there in the first place. You want to stay in fellowship. You don't want to get out of fellowship. The point is, how many times can I use 1 John 1, 9? That's not the point of the Christian life. Some people think it is, but it's not. The point is how few times you need to use 1 John 1, 9. You have to stay in fellowship, walk by the Spirit. That's where the action is. How do we do that? Verse 11, likewise, you need to consider yourselves to be dead to sin. You need to think in terms of the fact that the sin... Why am I, why am I letting the sin nature... That's the most irrational thing you, any of us can possibly do is let the sin nature dominate our life. It runs counter to everything we believe and everything we know, but we do it all the time. And it's because we haven't really grasped the fact that we are a totally new person in Christ. So we'll come back and hit this and go forward from verse 11 next time. 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that we've been given new life in Christ, and we need to live as people who have new life because it's only as we live in light of that new life that we can experience the quality life, the abundant life, the rich, full life of spiritual blessing and abundance that you've promised us. But we don't get that if we're still living, letting ourselves be dominated and tyrannized by our sin nature. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the significance of this more consistently throughout every day in every area of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.